Welcome to OBEHAVE, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Consulting. One of the vital things about this is that, one, the problem with economics isn't just that it's wrong, it's that it's creatively incredibly limited. Behavioral science makes it permissible in a business or policy-making setting to suggest counterintuitive things. Yes. Hi, I'm Julia Stainforth. And I'm Maddie Croucher, and we're the hosts of this podcast. This month, we recorded a transatlantic interview with Roy Sutherland and Jeff Chrysler. He describes himself as just a typical Princeton-educated lawyer turned author, speaker, pundit, comedian, and advocate for behavioral science. Most recently, Jeff collaborated with none other than Dan Ariely on their new book, Dollars and Cents, How We Misthink Money and How to Spend Smarter. It's sure to be one of the most engaging, entertaining, and accessibly written books on behavioral science. Please just keep in mind, Jeff was in New York and Rory in London, so the audio quality may reflect this. Next month, we hope to be 100% on new mics. Without further ado, here's their chat. So how do you meet, I've got to ask, are we ready? We're all going. How do you meet Dan Ariely? Do you want the 30-second version or the two-minute version? Too many versions. Okay. Yes. The, the great thing about a podcast is you're never that constrained. Exactly. Uh, so the m- small version of the backstory is that I, after law school, I went into comedy as most lawyers do. And I was into political humor and trying to use humor to explain and uh, talk about topics that were difficult. And that veered and I got an opportunity to write for uh, a website called thestreet.com, which is a investment website run by a man named Jim Kramer, who you may have seen. He's this crazy, wild acting guy. He um, has a show called Mad Money in the States. And uh, from yes, that was a show. Yeah. You've seen him. So he's quite the character. Uh, and I wrote a humor column about business and finance on his site. And then I got an opportunity to write a book called Get Rich Cheating, which was a satire of everything from steroids and sports to stealing elections to financial fraud and and showbiz fraud, and it was, you know, uh, um, a, it was a how-to book, you know, it was, the attitude was, you should do it, everyone's doing it, no one's getting caught, and I wrote that, and Dan Ariely got a copy of it, and I think at the time, he was, uh, he was working on his book about dishonesty, uh, and he invited me to come speak at his class at Duke University, his graduate business students, and at the moment, I had a character that I did. I had a recurring segment on one of the TV networks here on MSNBC, which is a news network, and I had this sort of tour, and it was this wealth-building seminar that I did, that I'd go in and I'd say, look, you know, imagine what you can do with money. You can do anything. You can buy a giraffe, a Fabergé egg omelet. You can have the world, and all, money's all that matters, and nobody gets punished for cheating. Look at all the cheating around the world. One guy, Bernie Madoff, no one else gets punished, so cost-benefit analysis, and I just had this whole thing, and I would go into Duke, to Dan's class at Duke and speak to these graduate business students, and, and Duke was you know, a, a top school. And I'd say, look, why not cheat? You're here to make money. And, and I would give this thing, and he wouldn't introduce me as a comedian. He would just say, here's someone who's advised some uh, very wealthy individuals and companies. And inevitably, about 20 minutes in, 25 minutes in, someone would meekly raise their hand and say, are you full of crap? And then I'd put it to the to the group, you know, about 200 students. I say, who here believes, you know, buys into what I'm saying. And inevitably about a third to a half of the class would agree with the basic premise that they should cheat uh, or at least consider that. And for me, that was my light bulb moment 
that what had previously been just sort of observational and anecdotal and some research that money messed with people's heads and that people could be driven to unethical and irrational behavior. Um, suddenly I realized I was in the presence of Dan and the work of himself and his colleagues and was seeing that there was a real science to this and seeing that even the most you know, fairly highly educated people, these students, could still fall prey to the biases and prejudices that, that money alone influences us with. So I and did that. That, that actually teaching people economics and therefore encouraging them to think of the world using that map does encourage kind of psychopathic or behavior that's indistinguishable from a kind of psychopath or sociopath. Yeah, well, certainly if everything is cost-benefit analysis or it's a zero-sum game or you know, it's just put in terms where you lose those things that are, that are hard, intangible and hard to measure things like ethics and morality and even public goods, um, you know, the, the collective good. How do you, if you're approaching every decision as a, as a calculus of, of gain and loss, then yeah, you can tend towards, um, like you said, these, a challenging way of an indoctrination in, in a very sort of selfish and self-centered process. Um, and the goal of my book and my lecture was essentially to say, let's not forget about ethics and morality, like let, that these have repercussions. And um, it was fascinating how those, those things which are hard to measure and which are hard to talk about are often things we ignore because they are hard to measure and talk about. And then we go to these biases that, I'm, that you're more than fully aware of, these shortcuts in decision making, um, because it's easier. So, I mean, the mechanisms that keep us honest are interesting because undoubtedly, at least in the short term, the calculus of honesty, it probably does pay people to cheat a little bit. Um, and your point that it was only Bernie Madoff who got caught and hundreds of people get away with it. And therefore, on a simple cost-benefit analysis, you're probably better off cheating. Um, there's an element, I suppose, to which... Uh, that's true, particularly in a world which finance, finance is particularly unusual, in that they don't really distinguish between wealth and professional reputation. I always notice this, in that mm -hmm. if you take medicine, for example, the most respected doctor and the wealthiest doctor are not the same person. True. Yeah, a plastic surgeons, I don't know the numbers, but plastic surgeons probably make more than typical people treating cancer patients who have no money, but one is more respected than the other. Fields in, in medicine which don't bring you that much professional respect. You're unlikely to get a Nobel Prize for, um, for botox, the discovery of botox, for example. Right. Um, and there is that strange thing in finance. I asked a friend in banking, who, you know, who's the most respected person in the financial industry as distinct from the richest? To which they replied, we, he replied, we don't really make the distinction. Yeah. And I always thought that was slightly revealing because, you know, in any field, you know, advertising, surprisingly, perhaps, uh, you, know, you know, broadly speaking, respected people aren't skint, uh, but the richest people are not necessarily the most respected either. And... Um, right. Well, so that's, it's, it's very telling and it, it's... It's some, so to, the, to finish quickly the story with Dan is, and we wrote this book, Dollars and Cents, which came out in the fall and was about um, the psychology of money. And the reason why I bring it up now in particular is because one of the points we do emphasize, and, and I firmly believe, is that 
we tend to measure things in these monetary terms as far as maybe respect and, and professional uh, reputation when we can't measure it otherwise. Uh, you know, I, I was willing to open up in the book and it took me a while to even feel this. Like in my family, my, you know, I went to comedy and writing after training as a lawyer and I have a brother who's a lawyer and a sister who's in finance and, and it was hard for my family to understand my process. So any little success I had, like, oh, I got on TV or I got this thing published. The question that followed was always, oh, how much did it pay? And for a while, it really bothered me. But then I came to realize that my, my family couldn't find any way to value what it was that I was accomplishing. So they went to what they could understand, what they could measure, which is that money. And I think you're, what you're saying about the finance industry, you know, having those always combined is very true. If they're always dealing in money, money is all they know. Money's the only you know, uh, measure of anything that they're used to. Whereas in medicine and, and even advertising other fields, you can see the impact of your work in other ways. Um, and I personally think it's not healthy to just have a money framework. Uh, and I think that that was, you know, again, part of what I was trying to say and, and part of what our book is trying to help people, you know, uh, un, be unchained from the belief that money is sort of the only measure that matters. Uh, well, interestingly, our last guest on the podcast was David Graeber, who's the anarchist anthropologist and the author of a book called Bullshit Jobs. Mm. Basically advancing the thesis that capitalism, uh, for reasons he goes on to explain, is creating kind of meaningless work. Um, almost as though its purpose is to keep the population kind of docile. Now, I'm not sure it's done with that conscious intent, but that mm -hmm. seems to be the effect. And yeah. one of the observations he made is that about money is that there is an optimum amount of money to be had, which is you need to earn enough that you don't think about money all the time, but not so much that you start thinking about money all the time. <laughs> you have too little money, it preoccupies your thoughts, not unreasonably, but if you have too much money, weirdly, uh, the same mechanism seems to take over where you know you get obsessed about the you know trivial differences in the performance of some investment or other um or you become in, you know insanely envious of people who have even more than you do and it's always i've always said the same thing about cars you want a car that's nice enough that you don't have to keep thinking about it all the time but isn't so perfect that you keep thinking about it all the time i was debating whether we should actually whether we should ask car manufacturers to sell cars that have a small number of scratches on the bodywork already in place. The purpose being that you don't have this first three months of neurosis when you have an immaculate new car. Yeah. Well, I also think that's how babies work. <laughs> you get a baby out and then the first time that baby falls on its head and you realize it will continue to live, you relax a little bit. Yes, no, absolutely right. Yeah, it becomes, you're absolutely right. It's, the first few months are terrifying. Right. Uh, uh, the fact that there's a million years of evidence that they're quite good at surviving. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, your your point as far as like certainly wealthy people or, or obscenely wealthy people continuing to become more obsessed, I've seen reflected. You know, I'm I'm here in New York City, and I went to um, you know some. I my privilege. I went to some very elite schools, Exeter Academy, Princeton, a law school. And I have colleagues and peers who I still run into now many, many years later, and they have families and they're on Park Avenue and these amazing apartments and they have two and three extra homes and just any measure of wealth that you might have, they've succeeded. And inevitably the conversation turns to how they wish they had insert thing that their peers who are doing slightly better had. And yeah. it's this like regret 
that is born of what they are surrounded by and, and sort of the per- continuing pursuit of that. Um, that, you know, again, my judgment is it's not healthy. I, I try not to judge others. Although, I mean, let me phrase that. I do judge others. I try not to always express my judgment <laughs> of others. It's strange, too. I was talking to Nick Christakis after Nunstock. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we were saying is, although at a financial level, uh, financial inequality is, depending on whose metrics you look at, is worsening, um, what you might call instrumental inequality um, is actually rather small. So the strange thing to me is that there were, there were some reasons in 1920 or 1930, fairly significant things you could do if you were in the richest 1%, which you couldn't do if you were in the richest 5 and the richest 5% could do significant things, by which I mean foreign travel, to take an example, mm-hmm. or owning a car in the United Kingdom, certainly. You know, uh, if you owned a car before the war, uh, you were probably in the richest 15% of the population. Um, uh, so the, the actual material difference that increased wealth made, my, my grandfather was a doctor in a Welsh mining town, and the things he could do being a doctor, own a car, television, washing machine, uh, domestic staff, etc. there was a huge list of, of pretty material things that you could only do if you were significantly wealthy. Now, actually, mm-hmm. the, unless you're really into yachts or you choose some derangedly expensive hobby, um, broadly speaking, you, know, you don't really, I mean, you know, most, what, 50% of people in the United States can probably afford the best smartphone in the world. You can afford the best computer games in the world. You know, tech, for example, is a remarkably democratized. Entertainment is a hugely democratized. Sure. Even, even travel, I mean, I can remember from from my youth, admittedly I was just, just a kid in my youth, but travel seemed like a more exclusive thing and travel is much more accessible, you know, <clears throat> pending um, bans on travel from my country aside. Uh, and that is, that is significant. I think you're, I mean, obviously there's a level of, of living in scarcity that people have to get above and that's uh, nothing to yes. be ignored. But the, I think the, the excess, the type of things people can access in the middle class or upper middle class versus even higher is not uh, as much of a, a drastic A or B anymore. It's it's more degree of the the extent. Like you can go yeah. on a great vacation, you just maybe can't do it for six weeks. The plane, the, the back. But right. compared to the difference between being on a plane and not going anywhere, it's a relatively trivial distinction. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, the, the argument for redistribution of wealth on you know interestingly. Um, uh, it, you know, one of the stronger arguments I think in recent decades is simply that there is a lot of wealth which isn't making that much difference. Uh, you, know, you know, I mean, I put only a fridge in. I, I, I think Rockefeller or one of those people owned a refrigerator in you know 1895 or something. But that was really something. You know, and that's a you know, I, you know, no one's going to dispute that that's a material improvement to your life. But actually, the other stuff now is becoming more about status or signaling or something else. Um, it's sure. not really about anything that an, an economist would call utility. Right. I mean, Je- Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, and you know, they they would take several lifetimes to effectively spend the wealth that they've gathered. Uh, and you know, I I don't. I, it's a challenge to say whether or not they should be compelled to redistribute their wealth, but certainly their wealth is not 
going to go to necessities for them. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting argument. I, I, I personally think that if we were able to help people out of this scarcity mindset, we would unlock a potential that they have that would benefit everyone all the way up to that top 1%. Um, you know, that's, so, that's so, my... so you think essentially that scarcity is an evolutionary adaptation, which made perfect sense for most of human history, in the sense that things that were worthwhile were scarce, mm-hmm. and that we're trapped with that same mindset that we find scarce things irresistible, even when actually a more rational um, take would suggest that they ain't all that. Broadly speaking, yes. I, I'm not confident in, in claiming full authority on the evolutionary basis, but it seems to make sense to me. I mean, the fact that scarcity is not only um, something that afflicts those that are actually living in the financial scarcity and studies show, and there's a great book, I forget the author's name right now, showing the impact of people's you know cognitive reasoning when they live in financial scarcity. Um, but even as part of design for events and experiences, I mean, it's, it's used in, in so many contexts. And I'm sure in advertising, um, you know, you know, these you know, prices, supplies are limited or this sale is you know, only going to last two more days. Uh, you know, all these these things, they trigger in us a desire to act quickly. I mean, you know, an online sale from you know, a shoe company that says, you know, don't leave this page or the deal will be gone is, is using scarcity, that, that evolutionary tick that we have to, to make sure we don't lose something. Um, so I, I definitely think it's... It's, it's something that affects us that, um, again, putting aside just the scarcity of financial living, but in, in our regular, most people's lives, being able to recognize that and, and not fall prey to that, that sort of cognitive bias and that behavioral twitch uh, would benefit our decision making. No, that's interesting. I, I, I think also another thing that's useful, uh, what's very interesting about your book, I suppose the Michael Norton book, um, Happy Money, is a similar uh, work, is... Okay, there's obviously consumer journalism, which more or less tells you whether you should buy this washing machine or that washing machine. Mm-hmm. Um, but economists are broadly speaking uninterested in how people spend money because they assume that they're maximizing their own utility yep. uh, by, by however they spend. And so obviously Kahneman's work, a little bit of work by Paul Dolan as well here in the UK, um, your, your book with Dan and of course Happy Money, There's surprisingly few books, given how many books there are on self-advancement in the workplace, for example, essentially books on how to get more. There are surprisingly few books which raise the question of how to spend wisely at a category level. I mean, obviously, you know, there are are magazines and there are programs which advise you to buy this Maytag rather than that Whirlpool. But I mean, that's a relatively trivial thing. The number of books which say, to be honest, don't have a car, but spend the money on holidays or vice versa. Um, uh, you know, the research in that area has been remarkably small. And I think it has to be useful because we're driven in our, so much of our consumption is probably driven by everything from just peer group effects, social norms, the feeling that I'm 29 and I really ought to own a house, own a car, own a whatever. I'm susceptible to this myself. But if you could just create better levels of debate and discussion about those sure. things. Now, actually, if, I guess it's happened in New York and London. It's probably perfectly cool not to own a car. Right. 
I mean, that, that is going to be but that, true. But that's, an envi- but that's an environmental effect. That's because you're surrounded by others that don't have a car and you see you don't have the need. But if you're not in that context, you may still fall prey to feeling you need a car. I, mean, I, think, I think there are two interesting things that, of what you just said. One is this idea of just broadening or opening up the discussion about what is value and wise ways to spend your money or, or to value what it is that you have income and, and how you relate. You need a car, all these other things. And, and that's part of what we're trying to do with our book and I'm trying to do with my other projects. Uh, really, like I run this website called People Science, which is about applied behavioral sciences, is using whether it's my humor background or just my writing to make these topics more accessible to help people like have this conversation and start talking about money. Like, you know, we, at least in the States, and I think this is true in many other places, we think about money all the time. We're obsessed. How do we get it? How do we spend it? What do we do with it? But we don't actually have conversations about, Hey, what are you doing? Are you, how are you investing for your retirement or your savings and insurance? We don't talk about that. We talk about spending and, and just being able to have these conversations more, I think will benefit people. Uh, and you know the the second thing that you that you suggested about the the different value of spending money in, on a vacation versus buying you know a bigger house or a car, I think is important. I think that you're right. There's not a lot of studies and certainly fewer books on it, but I do see them growing. And one of the things that excites me about behavioral economics right now is that uh, we're at a point where I think a few industries have sort of jumped on board. You know, finance, healthcare, uh, certainly sort of con- um, you know design and marketing and consumer interface. But I, I think that in like employee engagement, for instance, or incentives and motivation, there's room for these other things to come to play for the studies. And there are some out there that show that, you know, a, a financial reward actually is not as motivating as um, giving somebody not something non-financial, you know, the cash versus non-cash. Or like you can give a, an employee a, a $5,000 vacation to Hawaii is actually maybe as much or more value than giving them a $10,000 cash bonus or whatever the numbers are. There was a famous American example about this where they had, after the Super Bowl, there's some sort of famous celebrity American football match. And they couldn't pay the professionals to play in it. They just weren't interested. It was after the end of the season. Yeah, the Pro Bowl. The Pro Bowl is what it's called, yeah. And if I'm right, it takes place in Hawaii now. Is that right? Or something like that. Someone was telling me about this, and actually, instead of paying them a stack of money, they gave them and a bunch of friends and family a kind of first-class returns to Hawaii and fantastic suites in a hotel as a reward. And strangely, although the actual cash cost of this was much lower than the amounts they were offering, the perceived value was far higher. And I think this is a very interesting point, because economic logic has pervaded the incentives industry in how you reward employees. Now, one of the significant things, of course, is that cash is, and bonuses, for example, annual bonuses, are kind of contingent. So they signal, if you do this, I will give you that. Mm -hmm. What we don't signal is that your employee is committed to you over the longer term to the extent of being prepared to invest in you or engage in a relationship with you where even if you failed for a year, you'd still have a job. Right. Completely. Now, arguably, an expensive training course or indeed a company car or, as you said, a $5,000 vacation would probably signal, I care for you, much better than the cash equivalent. Right. And that, that's sort of a, an additional um, benefit of, of that is that then, you know, the, not just are you maybe more motivated to get something that you, you might not otherwise buy that $5,000 Hawaii trip, um, even if you could afford it, you might not do it. But 
then like you said, you, you're building that relationship. So within organizations, it does, as you, as you very wisely point out, it shows that you're invested and that this is a real thing. You know, a cash layout, you could give someone a bonus on January 1st and fire them on January 2nd. Like you have, it, it's just yes. money, you know, but if you give them a training course or, you know, there are companies that do pay for people to get a master's degree or whatever it is, that means there's an expectation that you're doing that to benefit everyone. Um, so in evolutionary biology, this is sometimes called continuation probability signaling. In other words, we're treating you as though our relationship has a future. Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of cases of kind of mutualism where you have, uh, for example, cleaner fish that, you know, in other words, the behavior has to signal that uh, in the long term, you're more valuable to me alive than dead. Mm, yeah. um, uh, so it's a very, very interesting thing, which obviously anthropologists understand and economists don't understand at all. Um, there's also an element to it. I've always believed that there's a kind of placebo wealth, which is that one of the great, one of the great advantages of giving people a $5,000 holiday is precisely the fact that they wouldn't buy it with their own money. Right. And well, like the, the, the pro bowl, the end, the, uh, football players that, that you mentioned, the pro bowlers, most of them could afford to fly their family to Hawaii and stay at the best hotel in the world without blinking but they just don't do that and it's like if someone else does that organizes it for them and make it, it's more valuable it's you know. and you can go out with your family and a few friends and actually if you were paying for your friends with your own money you'd probably resent it a bit and so on and so forth and so there are so many contextual things there that make that very very different and this is the great argument i've always used that money isn't exactly money that how you think about it determines what it is you know, there's this idea that it's the ultimate commodity, uh, you know, it's ultimately fungible, etc. But actually, the way in which you look at it, there's a brilliant opening chapter, of course, in your book about how that same person who made themselves a cup of coffee in the morning to save $3 will go to a casino and think nothing of the $3.75 charge from withdrawing money from the cash machine or the $200 they lose, you know, in a single hand. And, I mean, there's a very interesting question about patently our perception of money. I don't know. I mean, again, there's an evolutionary debate about this, but it has a, um, uh, you know, it, it's very contextually determined. Um, Absolutely. I mean, it's complicated actually in writing this book in that the work of George Lowenstein, I think he did some research which found that there, just as there are people who are spendthrifts, there are rather more people in the population who are skinflints. And that... Mm -hmm. Um, for every person who's actually slightly too prone to, you know, buy that extra bottle of champagne or uh, stay in the five-star hotel rather than the three-star hotel, there is also a large body of people who are actually disproportionately disinclined to spend money, uh, even when it would bring them, you know, a reasonable amount of happiness. They just find the act of paying too painful. And that is one of the that that is one of the biases run to is that it does cause us this sensation of of pain essentially to pay and and so then that's where these new financial instruments from credit cards to Apple Pay and you know retinal scale whatever the future is and making payment quote unquote easier will you know alleviate that pain and make it so people that maybe don't want to pay aren't even as aware of their payment as uh, they have been. Um, and as I you quite rightly point out, the casinos spotted this when they had chips, which don't right. like the cash equivalent. 
you can push across $50 of, of, of casino chips and it doesn't quite feel like losing $50. Yeah, and even to the more to the extreme, it feels like a fun game. It's a little plastic toy. Uh, you know, really, I, I yeah. think, I mean, I think you raise a good point about sort of there's a, a dissonance that people have where they're, they might be very budget conscious, you know, in the morning with the coffee, but not so much later. And, and that's, you know, essentially the, the challenge and one of the things to, I hope people recognize about money is that it is, you know, it's fungible, right? The a $10 that you got from a lottery ticket is the same as $10 you got from, you know, your hard work at a job but we treat it very differently or $10 you spend for groceries, the same as $10 you might spend at the casino, but we treat it very differently. And I, I think, you know, there, what we try to lay out in the book is to sort of point out the different um, value cues, we call them or different mistakes we make and different ways that we do stuff like that value money differently, depending on the context. But we also do whether they're skin flint, as you said, or just so hesitant to spend out of fear. Like we want people to recognize there are times when you should overspend for something as long as you're, you know, doing that sort of uh, as your conscious choice. Uh, you know, one example in the book, and I just got off of vacation, so I'm fresh in my mind, is on my honeymoon, we prepaid for our honeymoon trip, and we probably paid more than we should have, but then we never thought about money. It was much more pleasurable, you know, with the hope being you only have, you know, three or four honeymoons a year or a life. Uh, and, <laughs> and, you know, at the same time, you know, we made that choice to spend a little more so we didn't have to worry about it. Whereas I think many people would make a choice spending without even sort of thinking about it. And we don't want people to start being stress cases about it just now and then. Um, I, I think what we found is that people tend to worry about the small choices. Like, should I pay 10 pence more for the organic tomatoes at my supermarket? Those little decisions. Whereas when they buy a house or choose a university or buy a car for thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars, they make those decisions quickly and without as much thought. And we'd like to sort of flip that around and say, don't worry about the organic tomatoes, worry about the $100,000, you know, extra on your home. It's very interesting too, if you look at the process of buying housing, I'm very worried actually by the effect of online uh, real estate in the sense that people seem blind to the extent to which online real estate, where you search in a very clearly specified order, which tends to be place, then price bracket, then number of bedrooms or floor surface area, and so on. Um, it's actually, it seems like a wonderfully efficient way to find what you want, but the lack of serendipity that it provides slightly frightens me. So, mm -hmm. you know, the second you've clicked house rather than apartment, for example, okay. Now actually, you know, I live in an apartment in a, in a large country house, okay. Now, you know, when I moved out to the country, I was basically planning to buy a house. And then purely by serendipity, I discovered this remarkable apartment and my preferences completely changed because it's, it, 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 the architecture is very good. And it worries me a little bit that um, uh, there are an awful lot of choices which people make where they go through what makes them think they're making an optimal choice. But there's room in optimal choice for random surprises. And I'd almost like to campaign that uh, property websites, indeed travel websites and other websites, should throw out random things you haven't asked for in amongst what mm -hmm. you've asked for. And the same might go for clothing as well. I mean, 
there's an assumption that people know what they want before they've actually seen it. And I don't think that's really true. Sure. Well, I, I, um, I don't know that there's a way to make this safe for even a podcast, but I had a routine that I used to do. The, the point being, when we start basing things on, on preferences and, and sort of assumptions, like, you know, uh, I think Amazon has developed these, uh, these shipping techniques that they essentially get stuff shipped to you before you order it based upon what the algorithm tells them you're going to want. Yeah. It, it eliminates it, or it certainly reduces the ability for us to have sort of a, a change of mind. Sorry about that ring. For us to have a, a change of mind or for our preferences to change or for us to evolve, it, it sort of, you know, it strikes me that like once you're five years old, does that set the course of whatever thing will be in your life? And maybe on some aggregate macroeconomic level, again, you know, we can see a general flow, but you, you lose that individuality. And the fact that I think people actually genuinely want and thrive on surprise. Uh, I mean, there, there are studies, I, I, I saw one just a couple of days ago about learning, certainly, that, that people retain information better when they're in more of a state of, uh, of awe or surprise or something has set them off differently. And, and I think that just goes to show that we, we crave that something different from the routine. And if these algorithms, whether they're on travel sites or shopping sites, sort of just feed us what they think we want, um, I don't think that that is set up for us to be as successful and as happy as people, um, even if it is more efficient as consumers. No, and also, if you think about it, I suppose, the, uh, when we're searching, those things which are quantifiable dominate our search behavior. Right. So you know, location is kind of quantifiable by zip code. Uh, price is patently quantifiable. Surface area is quantifiable. Apartment or um, house is quantifiable. But there isn't a Robert Parker of architecture. And I was talking to Shlomo Bonazzi about this, and he thinks that actually you can gain a large amount of lasting pleasure from a well-designed house or a beautiful garden or something of that kind. But because there isn't actually a numerical value attached to garden beauty or or the quality of the architecture of the house, those things fall too far down the funnel. Absolutely. Or just the, I mean, just a feeling, having gone through house shopping myself, like maybe it's not rational, but you can go into a home that, that checks off all the boxes and you can just feel that it's not right. Or you can, like the place that we live is a smaller place than probably we could have afforded when we got it, but it just, something feels right about it. Something, it's on this little cobblestone street and it, the whole thing, it's just a feeling that, that connected with us that I don't know that you could quantify and that you could put in an algorithm. Now I'm sure some enterprising, you know, real estate investment trust is going to find a way to try to quantify all this and start measuring cobblestones per square mile and you know, all these other things. But uh, at the moment, it, it seems like there are so many things that it won't work for. Uh, I mean, that's an interesting debate in itself, by the way, which is you, like me, have, I mean, we've probably lost out through doing it financially, but I made the decision to underspend on property as well, on the grounds that it struck me that nearly everybody else was effectively maxing themselves out. The, the default behavior with housing was uh, buy as much as you can borrow. Yeah. It struck me yeah. that... That, that was assuming that the greatest return on happiness would come from property expenditure. And no one was really looking at the opportunity cost that if you've got a massive great mortgage, uh, you know, there's a holiday you can't take, there are children you can't educate, there are, you know, all those problems start to arise.
Right. Well, it, it reflects back to what you had mentioned earlier in the conversation. I forget what the comparison was, but essentially about opportunity cost that, that I think was about a car versus a vacation. That, that people can't, it, it's a challenge to think about opportunity cost because an opportunity cost is really everything else you could buy now or in the future. That is like choice overload. And I, you know, Dan did an experiment where he, they went to, I think it was a Toyota dealership. I think we mentioned the book and, and he said, you know, what else could you buy if you didn't spend $25,000 on a Toyota? No one could come up with anything. And if they really pushed them, best people did is say, well, if I didn't spend 25000 on a Toyota, I could spend it on a Honda. And it was just like, it was still that same category because thinking about five, $5,000 vacations or maybe a half a year less work because you put that to retirement. It, it, that's a hard thing to think about. And I, I know from my own personal experience, which isn't um, applicable to most is I've always been a freelancer. And so to me, tying up a bunch, what I'm sort of able to earn at the time of purchasing a home restricts my ability later to do other things, whether that's professionally or personally that I could do if I didn't have X thousand dollars going out each month. Um, but again, our, our, our system, you talk about New York and, and London being, being environments where people don't feel they need a car. Um, I think that a lot of our cultural signals go towards saying you need a house, you need a big house, you need to have this American dream. Certainly, you know, it's, that probably doesn't apply over there, but the American dream is always this picture of a home with a, with a white picket fence and little kids running around. And um, not that that's something you should not aspire to, but it doesn't mean it's the only form of happiness and success you can achieve. No, it's interesting. I mean, the uh, I mean, what's certainly true is that, as you said, that of course, cognitively, it is very difficult. You know, I don't have this Starbucks today. Uh, I could spend the money on one thousandth of a holiday to Thailand. It's a very right. difficult mental maths to do. You also argue that, of course, we have to enjoy ourselves in the short term as well as the long term, and that it, it, it was very interesting debate. I think in the UK they set a kind of idea of what the uh, you know, what you might describe as the poverty line, not to, not to finding it as a proportion of median income, which I don't think is a very satisfactory definition. But they made a list of what people need to have a reasonable life. And you know, slightly controversially, one takeaway meal for the family every week was on the list. A load of people said, well, no, that's, that's not necessary. And the argument back was, look, if you don't have some luxuries in life, if you don't have some indulgences, life's essentially a bit intolerable. Yeah. And so, you know, there is that complex trade-off between, uh, you know, essentially, uh, uh, you know, you, I mean, you can be too long-term. That's a, it's, it's a fair point to make that, uh, uh, you, know, as, you know, the famous phrase is there's no point in being the richest corpse in the graveyard. But there are, there are people who probably, I worry about particularly the very weird, particularly American, but also British um, translation of wealth into leisure where most countries, as they become richer, actually take more vacation. The United States and Canada are complete outliers in that, in that the amount of vacation time you have in terms of weekly norms doesn't seem to increase with increased wealth. No, uh, it, do it doesn't, and, th and that taps into another issue. We actually wrote about this on, on People Science recently, is that people are not, particularly in the States, and I can't speak to Canada or, or the UK, they're not taking vacation. People are reluctant, even if their work provides vacation time, to take that because of the pressures and the fear of losing your job and all these other factors. And yet studies are starting to show, and my hope is to sort of elevate these studies, that taking that vacation, having slow brain time, you know, unplugging, 
if you want to be selfish and you want to think just about your work, it's actually going to benefit your work. It's actually going to make you better to like sort of reset mentally and, and clear yourself out. But we aren't willing to accept that. And, you know, as I said, there are a lot of reasons why, whether it's a fear of, of job loss or this sense of guilt. Um, and I think that we would benefit from taking advantage of the vacation time and the breaks that were provided, but we simply and, and then you have this very strange thing, which is where leisure time does increase in societies. It seems to happen at the beginning of life and at the end. So people are prolonging their time spent in education, for example, mm -hmm. or it's perfectly acceptable at the age of 19 to take a year off and bum around the world. It's also right. acceptable at the age of 57 to leave your employer taking with you all your contacts and all your experience and spend 15 years on a golf course in Florida. That's fine. But taking time in the middle of your working life is deemed absolutely atrocious. Now that yeah. doesn't seem to make any sense to me. That, that seems to be, you know, it seems crazy that I can't draw down one year of my pension or six months of my pension when I'm 55 rather than when I'm 65. Well, I agree. And there, there's actually an interesting working paper with this professor named Hal Hirschfeld, who's out at UCLA. He's done a lot of work on, um, on self-control in the context of thinking about our future selves. Like you may have heard of these, some banks have, have played with the idea of when you sign up for things, you, you interact with a virtual reality representation of yourself because you start to connect more to the future and increases savings rate, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, that's a whole rabbit hole to go down. Uh, but his paper is essentially like looking at the span of our lives in, in this way and saying we do sort of value time differently at different stages. And if instead we are able to find a way to say, you know, I'm 40 and I now is when I would really value taking a, a year to travel around the world more than when I was 19 and more than when I'm a grandparent to find a way to do that. Now, how you do that practically in terms of whether you draw from your pension and what your job, and that's another question, but, but even the mental hurdle or the social sort of prejudices against that are so strong right now that we have to even start envisioning that possibility. Um, I mean, one statistic I read is that 68% of Americans would prefer, let's say, two weeks more vacation and 4% less salary, which is roughly a pro rata exchange, but that it's socially impossible to be the first person to take that step. That in other yeah. words, even though 68% of people in the office would rather have four weeks vacation, if you're the first person to do that, you become stereotyped as the lazy guy. So right. you have a disproportionate cost for being the first person to do something which actually, in aggregate, or you know, the majority of people want to do. And so it's, that's kind of a coordination problem, which is really interesting, I think. Yeah, well, I think, and that, that's where I think it falls on an organization to take the lead. And I think that that is something, whether it's about vacation time or, or a lot of these other potential applications of behavioral insights, is that it, it, it's got to, I think there's going to be a tipping point, to steal Malcolm Gladwell's phrase, where if some large organizations start to see the value in giving their workers more vacation and in, in, in essence insist that their workers take four weeks vacation because it helps overall productivity or whatever the bottom line is. If large corporations start implementing that policy or implementing, you know, Hawaii vacations instead of cash rewards and can start quantifying the impact, then I think more organizations will do it because individuals, as you said, within an organization can't, it's just too hard to do that. I can't be the one guy that never shows up at work on Fridays or that is gone for a month uh, because it just it won't work with my peers and the people that I need on my team. But if an organization sort of, you know, 
tries and experiments with these policies from above, then I think change will, will really happen. Um, but um, It's not even clear, by the way, that there would be that much economic cost. I mean, where the experiment's been tried, people who work a four-day week tend to be very, very productive because they want to get everything done by Thursday. Sure. Uh, there's also the fact that, of course, money spent in leisure activities may not only be more rewarding, it may actually generate more useful employment than money spent on manufactured goods. Sure. I mean, I can look, as far as your first point, I can reflect upon my own uh, aborted legal career is I knew I, I would have been driven by making billable hours as a lawyer. And I went to like a, uh, one of the top law schools and I had job offers and I, I would have been miserable. I would have made a bunch of money, but I would have been working, you know, six, seven days a week. And I would probably not have been as good a worker as I would have working either at something with different motivating forces or just less time because it would have felt like a, this tremendous grind. Uh, and, you know, there are industries, the law being the first that leaps in my mind, that sort of put people and churn them through this process that it seems like it's not as efficient, that actually having them work a little bit less but smarter and better and more motivated would be benefit to the company. I mean, the interesting thing, of course, which Americans need to know is that the idea of being paid by the hour, as lawyers are, as increasingly advertising people are, as consultants are, is essentially Marxist. It has a theory of value, which is essentially the labor theory of value, that you generate value uh, according to the effort you put into something. Right. Now, what's frustrating here is that I'm in a business advertising where you may only do this once in your life, but probably in the best afternoon of your working life, you should be able to generate enough economic value to justify your lifetime salary. Absolutely. And yeah, yet... I you're paid in a way that suggests that essentially you're, you're the, best, the best way to make money is essentially to do drudge work. Right. Well, the, the classic uh, example is, you know, a locksmith that opens your door in, you know, one minute when you've been locked out of your home, you were willing to pay that person less than a locksmith that takes an hour and breaks several locks and has to swear and sweat and go back to his truck to grab more tools because it looks like they're making a lot more effort when in essence you're paying for incompetence. You're paying for someone who doesn't know how to do it as well, who doesn't have that experience. Whereas, you know, uh, for instance, the creative field, as you said, advertising, a great example, someone that knows enough and has enough life experience to know this Coca-Cola campaign slogan is going to generate billions of dollars. That might only take them, you know, an afternoon to come up with, although it's really taken their whole life experience to get to that point but we structure it so that they have to make it seem like they spread that creation out across thousands of hours over many years. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't value that non, certainly the non-physical labor aspect of the things. No, so, um, one thing I'd, I'd love to talk about is just the connection, which I've always thought is a close one between behavioral science, uh, the insights of behavioral economics and comedy. Um, mm -hmm. In the sense that, Behavioral economics is to some extent the study of the difference between what we think we are and how we think we choose and how we really choose and behave. And that comedy also seems a close relative in that not all comedy, it's, very, it's fiendishly difficult to kind of anatomize comedy. Mm -hmm. Comedy is partly about context. It's about the extraordinary effect that context has on how we behave. That, you know, in a different context, $20 can feel like fun or, uh, you know, a monstrous extravagance. Um, and, and a lot of it, I suppose, is also about that question of 
that deep down we know we have these biases, but that we're, that we're in some ways in thrall to them. I've, I've studied this stuff for 25 years. I've booked a rail ticket too early, to be honest, to be to cancel it uh, uh, four days ago, precisely because of that only four seats left at this price. Right. Well, I, I certainly, you know, I look at comedy and behavioral science as sort of being, um, I don't want to say two sides of the same coin, but they do work together. I mean, a comedian like a Jerry Seinfeld or Larry David or, you know, a comedian who's, who's approaches, hey, did you ever notice people do this stupid thing? Well, a behavioral scientist comes in and says, yeah, and here's why people do that stupid thing. And yeah. they, it, 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 it works hand in hand. And, you know, certainly observational comedy. I mean, I mentioned my, my light bulb moment or my aha moment when I did my get rich cheating lecture with, you know, with Dan. Um, you know, as a comedian, I was reporting on what I had seen and I did some research to see how people behaved or, you know, certainly how companies behave. But um, it was sort of observational, like what I saw, what it made sense to me, these, these logical disconnects and these hypocrisies, essentially, that people displayed. And then a behavioral scientist sort of breaks down, like, well, why do we have these hypocrisies? Why do we have these biases? You know, what is... Um, you know, cognitive bias and, and cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias and, and these things that a comedian sort of sees but maybe doesn't have the, the terminology to fit. Um, and I think there is a, a very, um, very close correlation. Uh, I think part of the link is that the comedian, a bit like the anthropologist, has to be this kind of alien outsider who's capable of observing things at a distance with a degree of detachment and what's really difficult is looking at, I mean, this is why I always raise this four weeks vacation thing, because it shows to me how, uh, I mean, Americans will occasionally get angry about this. And if I actually say, why didn't you have, you know, you're supposed to be in the land of the free, but you're happy with two weeks, you, you bang on about freedom and the pursuit of happiness, but you're totally content with uh, a vacation allowance that Germans, who let's face it, are pretty productive. Germans, I've never met anybody in Europe so right wing they think we should have less vacation. Never come across it, okay? Right. There probably is some nutter somewhere, but you really have to dig <laughs> deep. Um, and yet, you can regard it as perfectly normal. And the ability to actually see something at a distance, in other words, you know, it's rather like a fish being aware of water, is a, a talent that I think is valuable in both fields. Uh, that a bit, uh, there's a wonderful thing which I think is masterful. It's a, he's not a fashionable comedian to like, called Michael McIntyre in the UK. Sure, I know him. Utter absurdity of the fact that when someone serves you expensive wine in a restaurant, they pour a small amount and ask you to smell it, to check that it's okay. okay? Now, we're all used to this. It's all happened to all of us. And then it makes the point, imagine if you asked for a coffee after your meal, and the waiter came up to you with a jug of milk and said, do you think this milk is okay? Because I'm not really sure. I think it may be a bit mm -hmm. off. That'd be the most ridiculous thing you'd ever come across in the world. You know, it's his job to tell you whether it's good or not. And yet, for some reason, in the world of wine, this ritual is regarded as perfectly normal and acceptable. And the ability to notice that and how ridiculous it is. Um, and then I suppose what the job of the behavioral scientist is to take those things and to codify them. I mean, right. it was a great, great phrase of Amos Tversky's where he said that, you know, what we actually do is take stuff which is instinctively known to advertising executives and car salesmen, and we codify them in a kind of recognizable academic framework. Right. But um, that's the sa I suppose that's the same link, that comedians are already instinctively good behavioral scientists.
I think it's, yeah, I think it's, it's an observational thing. Like, like you said, it's the ability to sort of be a fly on the wall or, or to take that 10,000 foot view or, and just be separated. I mean, I've, even when I was in law school, supposedly being a lawyer, I constantly carried around my little notepad and my tape recorder. And I just sort of stepped back and, and I looked at things that I thought were just absurd. And now I, I still, I've always will do that. But now that I have a little more information about what behavioral science offers, I start to not just think, oh, that's really funny, but like, oh, I wonder what's going on there. And I think, you know, the behavioral scientists probably approach it from the other angle where they're always saying, oh, I wonder why that's happening and what the forces are at play. Whereas before I was always just like, that's absurd and silly and should be, should be mocked. Uh, and it's, I mean, it, it's, it's been fascinating for me and very rewarding in that my work, the work that I do when I'm performing or, or, or speaking sort of what I, the core of sort of my professional career, now that I infuse sort of these, this scientific backing to it, it becomes a much more, um, not just entertainment, but, but sort of more practical and useful. And, and it, it feels good to me to know that there's actually an impact there because I'm not just some schlub who's noticing, you know, whatever the, the wine smelling versus the milk smelling. Um, you know, I also know that there's, there's science there saying this is, these are the reasons why. And, um, you know, I don't delude myself that I'm changing everybody's lives that I come across, but it is, um, nice that these two fields sort of work together in that people are irrational as Dan Ariely would say, or absurd as I've always said. And, and, and that's good. And that is quantifiable in its own way. Um, and it's, it's one of the beautiful things that, that makes humanity special. Um, and I hope it doesn't get lost in too much data science. That's one of the, that's absolutely brilliant. And one of the best, actually that, that last paragraph is one of the best ever takes I've heard, which is, uh, that uh, you, that people are in, uh, people at least defy conventional economic rationality, and we should love them more for it. Right. And that your point that data science is actually a threat in that it will attempt to make human behaviour conform more nearly to something which is actually less human. I think is is really interesting. I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing place to end. I'd just like to end on one extra thing, which I suppose having written the whole book. Um, I mean, very, very good advice at the beginning, which is, you know, be very, very wary of the fact that you can be gamed um, and that the casino is using about 17 different tricks. I, I remember when I was last in Las Vegas, I went to a cash machine and it would not dispense anything smaller than the $100 bill, huh. uh, which was yeah. bloody genius because it prevented you effectively saying, OK, well, I'll gamble the 40 and I'll take the 60 and spend it on a meal. Uh, yeah. Uh, you, you, by the time you broke that note into usable proportions, you were sitting at a table. Um, but um, what, I mean, you know, be very wary of those things is, uh, I think, extremely good advice because generally individual biases are okay when they act in concert. What, um, I think it's, um, uh, who, who's the wonderful guy uh, who works with Warren Buffett? Charlie Munger. Charlie Munger mm -hmm. called it a uh, Lollapalooza effect. When you get three or four biases acting in concert, then people's brains turn to mush. So you know, the auction is a classic case where you have all that business of loss aversion. Then you have the idea that you're, you know, each increment is in itself trivial. And so he always bans anybody at um, Berkshire Hathaway taking part in a kind of op open bid auction because he says it's a form of, uh, you know, essentially it drives a form of insanity. Now, um, and so, you know, I think one great warning is avoid, look for situations where you've got about five biases all working in the same direction. 
and resist um, because they kind of multiply. What other sort of three tips would you give if you had to give people three bits of life advice with how to spend it? Uh, what would you say? Uh, I would say first, uh, as an overall thing, to stop and think just now and then. You know, I mentioned earlier, like there, we have our big spending decisions and our small spending decisions, and there's even another category of our regular spending decisions, like our daily three dollar yeah. cup of coffee. Um, on those, on those things that are daily, the coffee, don't worry about it every day. Don't worry about it every time, but once every six months or so, stop and think: Should I be spending this money? And make your decision because, as you know, we make a decision once, and then we rely upon that decision to go forward. <coughs> for the little, for the little things, the ten cents on a organic tomatoes or the buying a pack of gum or a newspaper now and then don't sweat it too much think about it now and then uh, but when it comes to the big spending decisions that's the time when you should stop and think and and start to wonder what forces are being used against you and what forces you yourself are, are bringing to bear um, another piece of advice I, I would have is and this goes for money as well as any category of human behavior whether it's weight loss or general happiness is I don't I don't believe that we can change human nature but I think we can understand human nature and therefore create systems and environments and structures and nudges so that we use our human nature to our own advantage rather than having our human nature being used against us and so I would encourage people to if they start seeing their habits not try to change who they fundamentally are, but change the things around them and the opportunities that are presented to them. As simple as like the little tricks where, you know, put the, the sweets and the M&Ms on a high shelf or, or back farther away. So it's a little bit more thought provoking to get to them if you're trying to lose weight. Um, and uh, the third piece of advice, I, I guess would be, be wary of people that are stretching for three pieces of advice when they only have two. <laughs> no, that's absolutely perfect advice. I, I think your point about the designed environment is is very, very interesting indeed. I mean, I think that um, uh, I, I mean, I think the importance of uh, of the libertarian paternalism approach, the nudge approach, is interesting in that it doesn't actually remove. We, we forget the libertarian part of it to an extent. I, I it doesn't remove free choice. You still have the option to make a different decision. We're just suggesting what is the better one. I mean, it's an interesting, an interesting criticism I have heard of it, which I'll, I'll end on this note, if you like, is that nobody has yet given an example of where legislation has been removed and replaced with a nudge. So the hmm. argument from what you might call the American libertarian right would be that essentially nudging involves the government um, essentially putting some icing on top of legislation perhaps to make it more behaviorally successful. But what we haven't seen is, for example, a law that says you have to wear your seatbelt for the first three years after you pass your driving test. After that, when it's enshrined in habit, or your car has to beep at you and it costs you 50 pounds to have it disabled, but that seatbelt wearing is not actually compulsory. We haven't actually seen any, any uh, government legislation replaced with persuasion. All we've seen is persuasion layered on top. That seems to be a fair criticism from that from them. I would agree. I mean, I came my brain to think of examples of almost uh, the reverse of a, um, you know, what do you call well, like uh, the first one's free that sort of get you addicted to a habit, and then it's all of a sudden you'll buy it. Um, 
trial, like free trials, but doing that in legislation and rules, like you said, the seatbelts is a great example. Um, maybe that's the next step because I, I my, my, one of my last thoughts is that I, I hope that behavioral science can find a way through um, nudges or combating bias um, or, or working with bias to help uh, us more broadly than just our spending habits, but help us culturally and politically and um, in our general happiness and engagement with work and life. No, that's fantastic. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed. This has been fabulous. Thank you for your time, Rory. Many thanks to Jeff and Rory for another entertaining conversation demonstrating the wide range of behavioral science application. Dollars and Cents is available to purchase now, online and in stores. You can follow at Jeff Chrysler BS on Twitter for his tweets specifically related to behavioral science. And you can learn more about all of his work at his website, jeffchrysler.com. And you can follow us at our new Twitter handle at Ogilvy Consult UK. We want to thank Sound Lounge and Julian Goodkind for managing the music origination and production for the show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>